Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is digital editor Al Lunsford with Lynx. In the 2021 four issues of Lynx Magazine, we introduced a new series uh, that spoke to the attributes that were central to the design, challenge, and joy of the game's most cherished courses. To do such a thing, we thought no one better would be suited than someone who as it says here in his Twitter bio, has toured or played 1,800 or more courses in 35 countries and all 50 states, for that matter. And he is joining us today. His name is Joe Passoff. Joe goes back at Lynx way longer ago than, than my tenure here, uh, but he's been up to a lot since then. Uh, and fortunately for us, he's back contributing this year, and you'll start to see some of his stuff more so online as well. But Joe, thank you for joining me today. What have you been up to since the last time you were, quote unquote, a Lynx employee? <laughs> hey, Al, it's great to be with you and, uh, and great to be back with Lynx uh, as a contributor. So, um, you know, I started with Lynx in 1990. Uh, let me get this right. Six? I think that's right. Yeah, the beginning of 1996. And um, it was very special. Uh, I relocated from a, a Peterson Publishing in LA to Hilton Head. Okay, you know, uh, moved completely across the country, but it was pretty simple for me. I absolutely love the content that Lynx Magazine produced in the 1990s, and I love it today. It's not too dissimilar. You know, with a focus on great golf courses, the championships that we warm to, um, the best places to live, the history of the game. Um, I mean, that's my primary focus. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I mean, I really am happy and thrilled to be back. What I did after 2000, um, you know, a lot of us tried to move on to greener pastures with the big dot-com boom. You may remember that from your from your youth, uh, and everybody was going to make a ton of money, and it was all going to be very exciting. And of course, the bubble burst uh, not too long into uh, into that period. But um, you know, uh, I managed to keep writing and pursuing my passion about writing about golf courses, primarily a little bit of history uh, thrown in there, and so forth. Uh, I spent 13 years with Golf Magazine, Golf.com, and. Uh, ran the course rankings there and also uh, did travel stories for a long time. And that let me complete some of my travel goals, getting around to see some, not only some of the greatest private courses uh, in anybody's top 100, but also some of the uh, classic destinations and the upcoming new places that uh, to recommend to readers that people should go see. So kept me busy for, you know, close to 15 years on that front. And since then, I've been uh, doing some freelance stories for a variety of entities, including the USGA, the ASGCA, and others, and, um, and starting in on some club anniversary books. Uh, again, my love of history, uh, doing whether it's a 100-year book or a 20-year book. So um, I started to do some things for links again last year, and uh, really, really happy about bumping it up uh, substantially for 2021. And so are we. We're very, we're very happy to, to have you on board the ship here again. And um, before we get to, we're going to break down the, it, the series is called Paragon uh, that Joe worked on. And we're going to break that down issue by issue uh, before we get there. Uh, just knowing your, your history in the game and knowing you've played in every single state and multiple, multiple countries. Can you give me, before you start, your your personal favorite state, uh, golf state, we'll call it, and your personal favorite golf country outside of the U.S.? 
Wow. <laughs> uh, Al, you know, um, this answer kind of shifts from week to week, generally speaking. Um, the, my favorite golf course has been easy to answer, you know, for quite some time. And if you want that, we'll get to that. But okay. um, yeah, it, you know, I, I used to say I, if I was, you know, if I was speaking with my head, it would be California as a state um, because of the incredible variety. If it was, I was speaking with my heart, it would be Arizona where I'd more or less made my, you know, my place uh, of residence for, you know, overall for a long time. But of course, you know, Arizona suffers from the fact that it just doesn't have enough golden age architecture. And the desert courses, as striking as they are, is not what you call traditional golf. And I love traditional golf and I love Lynx golf. So, you know, going outside the rest of the world, um, man, that's been a toss up now for a few years between Scotland and Ireland. And, you know, I lean towards Ireland a little bit at times because it was more fun the greatest links courses were that much more spectacular than Scotland's best, but Scotland is where it all started. My heart down deep. I'm a historian. And although I've loved my adventures in, you name it, Australia, Morocco, Vietnam, I mean, you name it. <laughs> um, I have to go to Scotland. All right. I like the mix between the head and the heart there. I know that that's probably a common question and, and way of thinking that people will will attach to as well. And you mentioned you wanted to say your, your favorite course. Now, what would that be? Uh, without question, Cypress Point Club in uh, Pebble Beach, California. Uh, obviously, I have, uh, I, I've always maintained that the, the best course is, is still Pine Valley, uh, simply because it has the, in my mind, the greatest number of individually memorable holes that fit within a framework of 18. The only course I've come close to hyperventilating on on the first tee is the old course at St. Andrews. So I have to give my props there. But if and when I kick the bucket, <laughs> if it happened to come at Cypress Point, uh, except for the inconvenience to members, uh, who somehow let me onto the golf course in the first place. That's the last thing I wouldn't mind looking at before I left the planet. All right. So you heard it here first. If Joe Passoff ends up, you know, taking the pin out on 18, shaking hands and just falling out right there, it, it might've been a pre-planned thing as far as we know. <laughs> and you spoke to St. Andrews. We'll actually get back to, to St. Andrews at some point in this conversation. Um, but Joe, just initially, I know you and George talked through this entire series. What what went into you know coming up with these ideas and the thought process on on how you would tackle this assignment? Well, George Pepper, uh, whether he conceived of it alone or had conversations, you know, with other staff members to present this as a way that um, you know we all identify with. Uh, course rankings and best of lists and, and so forth. I mean, it's the ultra, ultimate grill room exercise. It, it really is the ultimate grill room exercise. So when you think of the best ofs, and some of the categories are a, a lot easier to come by and discuss, okay, you know, we get that. And, and we have fun with it. The toughest set of par fours, greatest finishing hole, scariest opening tee shot, you know, we all love talking about that stuff. But I think with Paragon, we wanted to do a mix of some of the familiar elements, such as um, we'll, we'll discuss, you know, the, the best match play venue, just by opinion. But then some of the others that come up are more subtle. They don't show up in anybody's ranking, such as the very first one we did, the ultimate test of patience. Now, any good player or not so good player knows patience is quite the virtue on a lot of golf courses and in handling your emotions and course management, you know, in a round of golf. But what course actually demands the most, that was a fun activity to sit down with George, go back and forth and say, well, what about this one? How does this one work? 
And, um, and we came up with some finalists and, and then I had to be comfortable on saying, okay, I feel it in my bones. Here's the number one choice. And then I ran it by George. And of course that was Pinehurst number two. Well, that's perfect. Great way to set up uh, our first issue. This is the winter of 2021. The ultimate test of patience, what Joe's referring to. And let's go a little bit in depth on that decision. Why Pinehurst number two? Well, as I phrased it, I believe in in the story, um, Pinehurst number two has this come hither, come get me kind of uh, hook to it because it looks so harmless. You're not intimidated. There's nothing out there that intimidates you until you actually get up close to one of the greens. So there aren't any frightening water hazards. The wind is almost never howling. Uh, the topography is relatively tame. Those lies and stances in the fairways. I mean, it just looks like you can score the best you've ever scored and wonder what all the fuss is about. Why does it host U.S. Opens and other big tournaments? And then you actually play it and you start to freak out about the difficulties that you're having getting the ball in the hole. And that's where Pinehurst number two gets you. And it gets you hole after hole. And you say, I can't believe I can't do better than this. And you finish 18 holes with the same ball. And you go, why didn't I score? I scored 10, 12 strokes higher than I thought I would. And that's where Pinehurst number two does the trick on patience is because you have to do some more thinking about it, some more plotting and understand it's going to take an extra level to succeed there. Sneaks up on you, certainly. And, and you had a couple of good quotes in here. One from Tiger who said in 1999, I, I hit a lot of greens today. The ball didn't stay on them, but I, I hit them. And, and Payne Stewart, after his victory, just said, you really have to think about where you want your ball to finish. So that it's not always something that you're considering ahead of time. If I hit it here, you, you most of the time you, you think you know where it's going to go. With Pinehurst, you really don't know until your ball stops rolling. Well, that's part of the genius, Al, with what uh, Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw did, uh, working with the Pinehurst owners to restore the golf course back in 2011, because putting more trouble back, if you will, into the sides of the golf course and letting it get as firm and fast as it need to be, re-emphasize positioning your ball properly off the tee. So nobody can really quite overpower Pinehurst because you have to be coming in from just the right spot, the way those turtleback greens are configured. You know, even if you're coming in with a wedge, if you're coming into the little tiny area on a diagonal and you just barely miss your spot, it's slipping over the back edge and now you're playing ping pong again. So, you know, that's what Tiger meant. That's what Payne Stewart meant. Two of the greatest ball strikers that the game has known is you have to be patient. You're going to hit some greens where you think you've hit good shots, but if you didn't hit better than good shots, it's just going to slip right off one of the edges. And now you've got some real work ahead of you. I like what you did in naming a couple of other examples. Uh, you called it a bonus trio of composure crushing championship courses. That's say that five times really fast <laughs> in your head. Um, and you, you have on there, you have Royal County down TPC sawgrass and Memorial park, uh, which a lot of people may recognize recently had a, uh, a makeover, a, a renovation from Tom Doak and Brooks Kepka last year ahead of the Houston Open. Um, can you speak to any of those examples as, as to why you threw those in as um, honorable mentions in this category? Sure. You know, Royal County Down and TPC Sawgrass are kind of two of a kind. There are so many occasions that you can get into serious trouble on both courses. At Royal County Down, it's somewhat obvious because you've got blind shots, you've got narrow fairways hemmed in by gorse uh, oftentimes and, and other prickly plants. Um, and, and, and these bunkers that are scary enough looking, 
you know, with the whiskers uh, coming off them that you, you're just frightened into making a tentative swing, trying to put the ball in play. Okay, so you know there are going to be some bad results at Royal County Down, and you just have to be patient enough to weather those little mini storms. At TPC Sawgrass, the terrors are a little more obvious. The mounding that's there, all the water hazards, all the variety of hazards, um, and, and the potential for double bogeys and triple bogeys scattered all over the golf course. So again, you know that's going to happen to you at least once, maybe twice around, if not more. Memorial Park is a lot more like Pinehurst. The way the greens were configured with short grass around them, there's enough length to challenge the big hitters. But again, you've got to be coming in with a proper shot, the proper trajectory, you know, a lot like Pinehurst number two, to have success there. And so when many of the best players in the world played that Houston Open there last fall and um, single digits under par was was an acceptable score right down to the end. Um, and Jason Day said what he did about having to stay patient. That one, to me, just made a perfect pairing with Pinehurst to say there's two very different ways of testing your patience. The, the next one, if I have this correctly uh, ordered, I thought to myself when I, when I saw it come up and, and the category for our spring issue, uh, I thought Pinehurst could have been a, a good choice there too, uh, because we were discussing the meanest greens in golf. And I, I wonder if that thought had crossed your mind as well, or if, if there were so many other good examples that surpassed Pinehurst um, that would make this list. You know, ultimately, and this is something I've heard over and over again, and people play this course and it's, bar none been the most challenging experience from a, a putting standpoint has been your pick. I'll let you reveal it. Um, but was Pinehurst considered in this list as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, the issue with Pinehurst it, coming in again the next time is uh, one of the things that George Pepper and I talked about, you know, was at least trying to maximize variety in our choices. It's inevitable. We're going to see, the old course at St. Andrews and, you know, and a few others uh, populate multiple lists, but in, in getting two in a row going, I looked at Pinehurst number two and said, it's every bit as much as the green complex, the putting surface and what surrounds it as much as the actual putting green itself. And when you get onto the putting green itself, there aren't so many beguiling interior contours that, you know, menace the golfer. It's the fact that if you're on the proper tier, it's all pretty doable. The hard part is getting on the proper tier. But there are others that I think we wound up selecting, at least for a final four, um, where just being on the green itself meant trouble. <laughs> your, your troubles were just starting once you were on the green. And the other thing I'll say about Pinehurst Greens is that um, you know, it accommodates a fair amount of play. It is both a private club and a resort course, and it's open all year. And so they can't keep the greens at U.S. open speeds. So especially in summertime, they're going to slow them down a little bit. And then they're not as uh, vexing. Um, when you know that you could take a hybrid from off the green and, and bunt it up there somewhere and, and not worry so much, no panic that you're going to put the ball by the hole uh, at, at a lot of different times of the year. So in terms of, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, no, I, go ahead. <laughs> I, in, in getting to the, the winner of the, you know, the meanest greens, definitely a couple of candidates, but Oakmont stood out time and again, first choice, last choice. And um, in, in going back and doing my research and, and I played Oakmont several times looking at some of the other potential finalists and it just seemed to me that there were more pros and more top amateurs that, <laughs> that got the yips and the shakes on Oakmont's greens uh, than, than anybody else's. And that's because of a combination of factors, right? It's not just they're firm and fast. I mean, there's a lot more going on there. Well, as a, uh, the fellow I quoted, who's a multiple club, multiple time club champion at Oakmont, Chick Wagner, 
And he pointed out something I hadn't really heard, but he's played Oakmont thousands of times that the phones is who originally designed Oakmont simply stuck it each green on top of the land as it existed. And it was rolling, cool, funky, slopey, all kinds of little contours going on. And that's what makes Oakmont's greens different than everybody else's, is those were as naturally sighted as almost any American championship course as you can think of. So there are other courses, including our finalists in that category, that have tougher uh, elevations from top to bottom or side to side or levels, sections of the greens that make putting an near impossible exercise when they're fast enough. But Oakmonts have the combination of everything, including firmness and speed to elevate above all the others. And they're POA as well in terms of the grass type, right? Does that just add another exponent to the the difficulty there? Uh, Definitely. You know, um, as the experts have finally told us, uh, POA can be a fantastic putting green grass as it, as it has been for a number of our national championships, provided it's well looked after Um, that it doesn't, you know, there's, there's not too much play on it and, uh, and, and the growing conditions are right. Um, And, and that's what Oakmont's been able to do. So that combination of a, of a lack of grain and, and, and getting them as firm as they need to be again, okay, you got to hold the green, you know, not just hit it. And then once you're on it, all of these ripples um, can destroy a, uh, a lesser man. Like you said, that's where the fun and in air quotes, fun really begins for people once they get on the greens. Um, so three more, three puttable dance floors, your words, not mine in Oakland Hills, the South course there, a familiar face in Augusta national and Harbor shores in Southwestern Michigan. Okay. Anybody who has three putted a green, let alone four putted a green, knows that there's a whole lot of sets of greens out there uh, that can wreck you uh, mentally uh, because maybe you hit the ball well that day and you just struggled so bad on the greens. But for courses that you're going to struggle every time on the greens, you know, Oakland Hills was one of my first thoughts. I thought at one point they were the equal to Oakmont's. Um, I covered the 1996 U.S. Open uh, while I was at Lynx, and uh, it was a wild tournament with Davis Love and Tom Lehman coming right down to the end with Steve Jones, and the greens played a big part in that. And as fast as they were and getting the levels, uh, the severe contours that they have, more severe than Oakmont's, um, made it seem like at that speed they were as tough as any in golf. Now, one of the reasons at the time I wrote this that I said, let's knock it down to at least second place was that Gil Hans was in the process of redoing Oakland Hills. And so it was a little bit of a wait and see, find out you know, how much he accomplished on the greens themselves uh, because that, that was just an unknown factor at that point. Augusta, we see it every year. Every single year, um, I, I point to the 16th hole as one superb example, where if you're on the wrong side of where the hole is cut, it, you're looking at maybe a 50% three-foot factor. If that hole is upper right or and you are front left, or if it is uh, you know in the Sunday hole location, but you've left your shot top right, I mean, good night nurse, that is impossible. But look at the 13th hole where guys tiger has putted off that green um you look at the fifth hole you look at many holes at augusta national and yeah they're right up there with oakland hills and just about to oakmont in in difficulty harbor shores hosted the senior pga championship for a few years jack nicholas that was in his period where he was designing some of the wildest greens that he ever did and um in many cases they've been softened over the years, but uh, Harbor Shores provided a heck of a test for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, just watching the masters every year, it's, it's hard to, to see guy. I know there's a lot of people that play it for the first time 
every single year, but it's hard to see some of these guys who have been there year after year making some of those mistakes. It's hard to fathom, but I that's I guess that kind of the genius of, of the Greens there. It's also funny to see Gill's name on here too. I if I had to pick of the courses that I've played, the hardest greens I've ever played were at Winged Foot, the West Course, which Gill's done work there as well. I it's hard to explain just the the vast massive contours of the greens at that place. Yeah, I would have been happy to give a, a fifth spot to Wingfoot. Um, <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Your next piece in the summer, we were kind of talking about it before, uh, and you thought this would would be a nice twist on things, and, and maybe, you know, certainly untraditional in the way you think about the challenges of the game. This isn't really a challenge. It's more of a pleasure, right? And the courses that fit in to this category after dinner golf in the summertime, when you have the ability to play golf later into the evenings, those twilight rounds that will stick in your head for a lifetime. Am am I in the ballpark there with the idea behind this one? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, when George and I were discussing what was going to be the appropriate summer topic for Paragon, um, we th- we both threw ideas back and forth, but there was something that I hadn't tossed at him that I simply couldn't get out of my head. When I think about summer golf, I think about extra daylight. I think about extra golf. And I just couldn't get that out of my head. And so when I thought about my favorite places for extra golf, And, you know, whether you grew up in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, in the South, doesn't matter. Summer provided a little extra daylight. In the northern climes, it provided that much more daylight, but you were just thrilled to be able to play for another hour or two or three. Well, how about the places that you could actually get a whole round in? You know, and that's what I threw at at George Pepper and said, how about this? And he said, I, you know, okay. And I said, well, while we're at it, here's my favorite, my absolute favorite for Twilight Golf. And it was Royal Dornick, way, way up north in Scotland. I mean, it's one of the world's greatest golf courses to begin with. It is where Donald Ross learned his craft. Um, It's the first course I ever played in Scotland back in 1992. And, um, you know, I, I just thought there are other ways of honoring Dornick. Their greens are pretty hard <laughs> and difficult as well. But um, I thought as for pure pleasure, uh, this would be a place where you could continue playing golf or go get yourself a light little supper and then go out and play another 18 and, and finish comfortably. Yeah, this was one our publisher, Jack Purcell, just took a recent trip to Scotland and um, because of how far north it is, it's sometimes one that gets X'd from a schedule around a tour of Scotland. Just it's kind of out of the way. You have to make your way and really want to go there to make it part of your itinerary. Um, but there are a lot of good reasons to get there. This being one of them, as you you so explained in your column from Greg Norman to Tom Watson and Harry Varden has a great quote about the par 4 14th as the most natural hole he's ever played there's a lot of history and a lot of fondness about this place i mean what else can you say to it what was that being it was the first round you played in scotland i mean how great of an introduction to golf there was that yeah i mean most everything else was a letdown (laughs) big big time and um we were over to uh cover the solheim cup uh, which is going on at a course called Dalmahoy uh, in Edinburgh. 
and had uh, four days or so of golf before we needed to be, you know, on the grounds. And, you know, again, I, I was brand new in my career. This is absolute kid in the candy store stuff. I idolized the writer Herbert Warren Wind, who wrote for many years for the New Yorker, Sports Illustrated, handful of others. And he wrote an essay in 1964 in the New Yorker called North to the Links of Dornick. And back then, it was about a six-hour drive from the nearest stopping point, and new roads cut, cut the time considerably. But that always struck me, that he had heard from the people that had played in the Walker Cup in 1963, including Pete Dye, who was over there to play in the amateur, Billy Joe Patton, and others that you had to go see Dornick and Billy Joe Patton made it a pilgrimage because he was a North Carolina guy and Donald Ross was all about North Carolina and he wanted to see where Donald Ross had come from. So did Pete Dye. So this became my own pilgrimage. And, uh, and, and that was what I wanted to do first and foremost, other than seeing the old course. So I saw it late in the year. That was late September. And, and we didn't have all that daylight. Now, the next couple of times I went back, there was a lot more, but Dornick was worth the journey, worth that arduous effort to get there to see, you know, some of the most amazing architecture that's ever been produced. Like you mentioned in the piece, uh, Dornick is roughly about the same on the map as Juneau, Alaska. So once you get into the the peak of summer, you, you can really play until, you know, 10 and a little bit past uh, in the evening. Um, I'm sure it makes for great sunsets as well. Yeah, I, I did take that reference from Herb Wynn's piece in The New Yorker, but I fact-checked it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then looked at, as I did with these others, just where, where things fell and um, you know how, how high up you needed to be and how much daylight, daylight you would have. And um, you know it was pretty consistent. And, and even in recent years, you know, being at a place in Scotland at 930 at night and still have their acceptable daylight. Dornick's just up so much higher that you get that midsummer advantage. And so uh, that is not uncommon at all for people to do what I did, what Greg Norman did and others. And um, it, it can also involve getting another golf course in during your stay. Um, if you happen to be staying up there, you know, one thing that we did on one trip was play Dornick in the morning and then go to Nairn and try Nairn in the afternoon and then go back and play more golf at Dornick in the evening. I mean, that's about as fun as Scottish golf can get. Three more courses that glow in the gloaming, as you say, are uh, the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge uh, in Alberta, Canada, the Lynx of North Dakota, and Lofoten Links in Norway. I know that's a a dreamy type course that's on a lot of people's bucket list because it's one of the northernmost courses you can play in the entire world. Your your experience either studying or or playing any of these three courses. Well, I've got some late night golf experience, uh, and that's not a Caddyshack reference or anything. Um, I, I, I twice I've been lucky enough to play golf at midnight. Once was on a trip to Alaska, and, and another was uh, close to a week long in Finland, and going into the northern Finland, kind of north central Finland, uh, we actually had one round, uh, we finished a Johnny Walker tournament, uh, I, I staggered to the finish for understandable reasons, uh, but that we finished around midnight, and then the next day, we actually had a 10.37 p.m. tea time and finished, you know, a little after two in the morning. So I know from late night, twilight kind of golf, but the courses I played in Alaska and Finland weren't of the kind of championship caliber uh, or such extraordinary playing value as the others on this list. So, you know, Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge, uh, Stanley Thompson, classic 1920s architecture, just a fabulous fun place. I like his Banff Springs course just a tiny bit better, but you get a little extra daylight. I think about 10 minutes worth at Jasper Park Lodge, and that was enough for me to boost the Canadian Rockies uh, winner as Jasper Park Lodge. 
Uh, links of North Dakota, Stephen Kay, a New Yorker. Somebody in North Dakota saw him speak at a seminar and said, we've got a piece of property, you know, we'd like you to come look at. So Stephen brought his uh, New York wise guy sensibilities out to North Dakota and uh, laid out a really, really fun, interesting design. Um, I played it six times over three days with Stephen and uh, some other folks. And one of the things that struck me way back when, and I, and I think I did publish an article in Lynx maybe in the year 2000 about this, um, was that it was set at the, uh, as, as I put it, uh, the western edge of the central time zone. So it kind of the last place in that time zone that the sun finally disappears. So really good golf, Lynx-like in so many ways. And, um, and again, some, some extra daylight to play some more. The last choice, uh, as you pronounced it, Give it to me one more time. Well, your guess is as good as mine there. I said Lofoten Links. Um, I look at it and I think of the E Street band, Bruce Springsteen guitarist, Nils Lofgren. And, um, and then I have to get back to whatever its actual name is. But um, yeah, this was a suggestion of George Peppers uh, because I haven't been there. I've just read about it. And of course, there is one photo uh, of a par three sticking out, it's green, kind of isolated in the rocks, where you talk about those fantasy calendar holes that you would love to go play one day, that's one of them. That is absolute bucket list material. And even though there's lots of other candidates that might make for some fun in late night golf, Northern Norway, you can play all day and all night and have the chance to play a hole like that and, and maybe some other fun courses uh, holes on that course, um, man, that that would have to be a good do, and, uh, and 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 it made the final four. Yeah, I think a good way to describe this is a bunch of courses that look like they belong on another planet because of their majesty. That's a good way of looking at it. And although I haven't had as much interplanetary golf, uh, I, I can safely agree with you. Fair enough. And and these places tend to stretch the imagination that way. That's a big part of what elevates a course from just good, great into some other aspect of why we recognize it. So we start off talking about some characteristics, attributes of a golf course that go straight to the challenge. Others go to the joy. And that's what we were talking about really you know, with, um, with the after dinner golf, the twilight golf and aspects that are kind of mystical, kind of magical that elevate a place. That's that other side of evaluating golf courses that I hope that Paragon, this whole series continues to speak to. And again, I think that's a, a perfect way to set up the, the final one from this year's series where I almost consider the category to be kind of a mesh of both of those things, right? So you, you're talking about specific aspects and characteristics of these courses that in, in our last one, we we're talking about the, the ultimate match play venues. So that speaks to strict, the, the strict play as well as the, the kind of allure of, of a match with your pals and, and going back to the roots of the game where you're, you're not really playing for, a score on the scorecard. You're more so just playing head to head and see who, who bests who to do such a thing. It, it kind of makes sense to go to your pick here and the old course at St. Andrews. Well, that was uh, not an obvious choice for me or for George Pepper. Um, we talked about it a little bit as the exercise was going on in making our choices and all of a sudden, the light bulb went off and said, no, this is the obvious choice. Okay. I mean, it, it floated for a little while and then it was boom. This has to be the choice because there are some that will argue that any golf course in the right competition or spirit of competition can function as an excellent match play course. There's others that say there's no, there's no such thing as a match play course or a great match play course. I'm going to disagree with that, although I'll, you know, I'll, I'll allow the point, if you will. 
But to me, what elevates a great match play course are those choices, are those maximum risk reward opportunities where you will take some risks because it will only cost you one hole if you don't succeed. And so there are many other courses out there. Take TPC Sawgrass, for instance, um, that would function as fantastic match play courses, but we typically only see it in stroke play. And players, a lot of times, won't take as many risks because if you fail, you can make a six or a seven or an eight and put you out of the tournament as opposed to costing you one hole. So to go back to the winner, the old course at St. Andrews, again, it doesn't blow you away with scenery for the most part. There aren't these big lakes sticking out where you say, can I drive it over the corner and really shorten it up? What you have is the wind and you have bunkers scattered all over the golf course that come into play some days and some days they don't. And some of them are so severe that if you land in them in the wrong spot, you may never get out unless you pluck it with your hand and toss it out. The old hand mashing. So certain times in stroke play, you're just going to play a little more conservative and avoid those bunkers. But in match play, man, oh man, you say, I'm going to go for it. And um, lo and behold, if you pull it off, you feel like you've conquered something fantastic. Going back to, to how I was introducing it, I guess I have the perspective of having read the piece after the fact. And to where I say it seems like the obvious choice, of course it does to me because I've, I've read the argument for it. And, and yes, now, of course, that's the obvious choice. Um, but like you said, it, it, the light bulb had to go off for you. And then all of a sudden, here we are. And there, there was no other number one. Um, as far as two, three, and four, in no particular order, I guess, a hoopy match club uh, there in Georgia, talking gill hands again. Austin Country Club, where you've seen the WGC match play go on for several years, and Bandon Dunes, which we'll see a lot of in the years to come with the USGA setting up multiple championships there. Well, again, Al, uh, many possible candidates to have filled out the four winners, if you will. We saw that, especially at the Ryder Cup with Whistling Straits, which proved to be an absolutely superb match play venue. Again, with guys having to make decisions over and over and over on what club to hit off the tee or where to place it, whether to drive a green and, and so forth. So uh, the Ryder Cup hadn't taken place, obviously, when I wrote this. And even so, the other three candidates that did show up are extremely worthy in their own right. With Ohupi Match Club, which is not too far from Hilton Head, um, Gil Hans set out to do a golf course on behalf of its owner specifically for match play. And as a gimmick, eh, you know, okay, uh, I get that you're there to have fun, but in execution, it worked out incredibly well. I was fortunate to walk every hole with Gil during construction, explain to me just why it worked, how it worked, at least how it was all intended, and you go from the old course, the oldest course on earth, to one of the newest great golf courses. And you say, you see the beauty of match play, whether you're a 12 handicap going against a seven or a scratch against a scratch, or however you're working it out, there are multiple routes and choices on almost every hole at a hoopie. And that's what makes it stand out from so many of the other modern golf courses. Uh, Austin Country Club is, is curious. I was not a fan. I really wasn't. I could name you 25 Pete Dye courses that I preferred. But as a match play venue, it has grown on me exponentially. I said, well, it's just too short for these guys. There are just too many layups. And then again, bells going off. They're not playing stroke play. They're having to make decisions on should I go for this par four? Should I go for this par five? And even on some of the tiny par threes, I was amazed on a 140-yard hole how many shots were hit short or left, never to be seen again. 
And that's because Pete gets in your head and says, you're supposed to be able to hit a shot on a 140 yard hole. If you're a top pro and some of these guys, when the pressure's on, you know, just missed by a little bit and boy, oh boy, they were going for the hole and maybe they should have gone for 15, 20 feet to the right of the hole. So that has totally grown on me. And Bandon Dunes, of course, it often plays second or third or fourth fiddle and now fifth at the Bandon Dunes Golf Resort in Oregon. But by hosting the U.S. Amateur last year and watching what came down the pike match after match after match between the setting, the wind, and David McClay Kid's design brilliance, oh, my goodness. I'd like to see the U.S. Amateur played there every other year. Interesting that it was – we kind of positioned this one around the Ryder Cup, so it would be – you know, a topic of conversation. And along with that, do you think if you had written it after you saw what happened at the Ryder cup and you, you talk about the first hole is you're either driving it like Bryson, or if not, you have a good drive. Um, if you don't birdie, you're going to go one down right away because someone's going to birdie in your group. And then I, I know there was a par five early on that a lot of guys were hitting in the water because they just couldn't decide Am I going to go for this or not? It Things just seem to flip pretty quickly out there. Do you think that could have cracked the list, just having seen what happened at the Ryder Cup? Or is that recency bias? Well, um, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're absolutely right. It, it was such an amazing event, uh, seeing what the golf course allowed these guys to do. Now, the setup itself with softer fairways and they cleared out the rough the greens were on the soft side um okay you know we saw a ton of birdies being made but for the actual match play value of it it holds up with at least any of the three runners up and it was also fun because we got good wind on friday afternoon and on saturday and not much wind friday morning or sunday so you also got to see these same holes day after day after day play with different winds. And again, you know, that's one of the issues that we go back with with Lynx Golf. When there's no wind blowing at St. Andrews, it is simply too easy for today's top players. I'm sorry, that's the way it is. And so the risk rewards and match play aspects don't come into play as well. But when the wind is as it should be, nothing abnormal, just the way Whistling Straits was struck, it's fabulous. Now, we know Bandon's winds can get insane. So even there, you know, okay, you have to temper a little bit. Austin, you know, Texas has its share of winds. Would I substitute Whistling Straits right now as the Pete Dye example over Austin Country Club? Um, yeah, with old uh, Lake Michigan sitting out there. Yeah, I probably would. Yeah. Well, a couple of good ones to choose from for sure. And yeah, you're talking about Bandon. I remember them playing that tournament and hitting into the fog on the 16th hole there, just having zero idea what lied ahead. Pretty fascinating stuff. So that was our the, the 2021 slate. As I mentioned earlier, we are going to continue this series with Joe into 2022 and maybe even beyond. Who knows? We'll see. He's doing a great job with them. And I commend you, Joe, for making this a very interesting series for us. We know at this point that winter, I'm going to break some news, give a little sneak peek at our winter issue, but we know that Joe is going to focus on the most beautiful courses. And I have no idea where you're going to take this, Joe, but do you have some idea? I think I do have a pretty good idea, Al. Yeah, I've had the winner of this category set in my mind for about 40 years. So I think, <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm ready for that. As far as uh, the three courses that will follow, this is going to be a lot of fun in the research department because uh, whether it's uh, politically correct or not, we all love beauty contests. And... Um, as far as being a golf fan goes, this is the, the ultimate beauty contest is what we're going to pick next. 
as they say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, how much do you try to rely on other people's opinions of what makes a golf course beautiful versus your own? Well, I'm willing to allow for some outside opinion to creep <laughs> in here and there, but, um, you know, I've just seen so many courses in person, uh, in addition to, you know, years and years of watching them on television, but your point is right on about being in the be in the eye beauty being in the eye of the beholder, because it would be simple enough to plop down four courses that are right next to the ocean, whichever ocean you pick and talk about the beauty factor. But there is one of the absolute joys of golf, which is part of the Paragon series, is that beauty does come in different forms. And it might be a rugged, linksy landscape in the middle of America that is not on the water with sunflowers and prickly bushes on the sides. It might be a golf course backed by the Swiss Alps or by the Rockies. That is beautiful. There are other golf courses that are bedecked with flowers and shrubs as if you're getting the prettiest walk in the prettiest park, only you get to keep score and play golf against somebody. And that is beauty in its own right. So I've got some work to do on the research of that story. I think I've got number one covered, but two, three, and four are going to represent uh, a little bit of a, a spectrum of beauty. Sounds like if you can expect anything like you can with each of these individual pieces, there is going to be a lot of variety involved. So don't expect to see the same courses that you've seen so far or are moving forward. Uh, and that's what it's all about, giving you a lot to chew on, think about, and uh, have your own debates with with Joe, with, with any of us about what you consider to be to meet the ultimate qualifications for each of these categories. It's a fun, really fun way to take a different look at the qualities of a course and it spurred some good water cooler conversation around our office. And, and I try to work this into the conversation with other people too. But um, again, it's just been a great job, Joe. I look forward to reading more and, and thank you for coming on today to explain your picks thus far. I sure enjoyed it, Al. And uh, anytime we're talking about the kind of golf courses where golfers are sitting around either a water cooler or a grill room, and uh, you're thinking good thoughts with any mention of any one of these courses. It's a, it's a good time and, and a good day to talk about it. Cool. Thank you again. Take care, sir. Cheers.